0: Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Ponds, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear.
1: Well, now, where are we in Romans? Because we talked a little bit about sin. Well, he begins by some little small talk to really engage the people he's writing to, which would be believers in the city of Rome. And so he wanted them to know in that church that he really loved him. And Paul really spent a good deal of time telling that. He hadn't been to Rome yet. And so he's telling them a little bit about himself so they would recognize who he is and why he had the right to say what he was saying, who he was as far as being you know, an apostle, etc. But then he gets right into it. And I, I don't... This is, this is big news because Paul gets right into this and he starts out by telling... That there are three kinds of people in the world generally in their relationship to God. The first group of people are going to be the rebellious people, they're going to be the rejectors of God. These are the ones that we might want to call pagans. They have their gods, but it's little G O D S. In fact, what they've done is they've made little handmade gods out there. Although they knew God, his eternal um, power and his divine nature and all of that, but they didn't worship him, they put him down. And so then God took those people and gave them up to their own religion which was a rejected God, and they had a horrible life after that, and you could read all about it, and you can get that and learn it. But then there's a group of people on the sidelines who are very smugly saying, yep, those heathen, those rebellious God rejectors. yeah, they deserve to be guilty and under God's wrath. And those are the people that are looking at themselves and saying, I'm pretty respectable. I'm not wicked and bad like those people. I've done a pretty good job with my life. I help people. I've got a good family. I pay my taxes, that kind of thing. And so they are very respectable. And so Paul, knowing that, he looks at them, bringing the message from God to them to say, you know what? Yeah, you are respectable. Maybe that is a good thing. But you've done the same wicked things that they have in your own way. And you are still guilty. You still need a savior. You are still lost under God's condemnation. so those people are now got their clock cleaned. Uh Uh-oh. Then he looks to another group of people that's watching saying, I am not like those heathen. And I'm certainly not like those respectable people. I'm better than them. I'm not only respectable and good. I'm religious. I have a real connection to God. These others, they may or may not. The others have their own little God and idol over here. But I really know the real God. And what was so good about this is that he was speaking to a group of people that we might know a little bit about. And it would be the Jewish people. And if you remember last week, that's where we kind of ended, was on the Jewish people. And they looked at their rules, their religion, so to speak, their rituals, all the things that they were counting on in their connection to God that they thought they were hoity-toity, that they had it all together. And you know how it ended. They were still under sin, just like the others. Because you see, no matter how good we are, we'll never get to heaven by our good works. And that's what he's speaking to, that even the very best people and the religious people are like that. Now, I want you to know that some of you might be thinking, oh, is stand down on Jewish people or maybe even religious people? Nope. But here's where we're going to go in today's message. I'm going to call it, and the verdict is, but I want to build towards that verdict. And to do that, maybe with your mind's eye, you can kind of listen up and see if you can fit in as I develop this message. Another question about television, maybe. You've seen a lot of um, legal shows on television. You know, all the ones that are lawyers and prosecutors and judges. And I'm not going to ask you to yell out your favorite program over the past, but let me just ask you this. How many have you seen those different kind of lawyer-type shows on television? Would you raise your hand? Okay, good. I was talking to one guy, and he was an attorney. He wasn't one of ours. We have two or three in our church here, but I didn't talk to them. But I did talk to another one. I said, whatever made you want to be an attorney or a lawyer? Especially as there's so many jokes about these guys, you know, I said, what made you do that? And you know what he said? When I was a little boy, my mom and dad only wanted to watch one show and it was Perry Mason. And he said, I love Perry Mason and I just wanted to be Perry Mason because I wanted to win every case that I could ever try. I thought that is kind of neat. Now, why am I telling you that? Because I want you to think a little bit in terms of a courtroom scene. Now, what I'm going to be preaching to you is not a courtroom, okay? But it is in a certain sense because we're going to see how he develops an argument. So we come to the conclusion of, and the verdict is. So that's why you want to kind of connect to that. So let's kind of show you what's happening a little bit. There's a jury of, say, 12 people. And in this case, the Apostle Paul is like the prosecuting attorney. And he's now done pretty much with the end of his case. And now he is looking at the jury and he's ready to do his final presentation to the jury. And it might look something like this. He's now looking at them. He's done all that he could to try the case. And now he gets his last little blast at that jury. Most attorneys, and I think probably the good ones, all of them do this they're anticipating what the jury might be thinking after they're hearing all that they've heard over all these days, weeks, and months in this courtroom. And so he's already anticipating what would be their question that didn't get answered. What would be their objection that didn't get answered? And so what he's going to do without them asking those questions to him or giving those objections, he's going to anticipate them and state what they are in his presentation and then give the response back to it. Now in this passage, I'm going to, Suggest to you that I believe there are five of those objections that he's going to present and five of those responses and some basic questioning that they'll have in their mind. But that's not all. After he's done that, he's going to bring up what I might call supporting witnesses or supporting testimonies. Now, that part won't need to take so long because once he's done with this, you're going to see that it's pretty clear what the problem is. But he says, I need to do one more thing. I need to throw at them some special testimony so that they can see the verdict is. Now, when he's done with that... He then ends up with giving the conclusion so he does the objections and the responses he does all of his testimony with the supporting testimony and then he says all right now here is the conclusion of the whole matter and why you need to find them whatever that might be and then we're going to see in this case obviously it's going to be guilty. And so why don't you follow along because even though there's jury, you may be part of that jury right now. Those of you listening to me might have those same objections about Christianity and God and what it means for you to be a sinner and lost and condemned and a place waiting for you in hell separated from God and all the stuff that most people don't even want to talk about. And yet I want you to not feel underneath this pall of doom and gloom. There is that because there is that problem. But I also want you to know that the Lord will very quickly take full responsibility to provide a way of escape so that you can have eternal life. So you want to be a part of that. Now last, I want you to listen as well as this. While I'm presenting this to you, those of you who know Christ as your Savior for so long, you already know that according to Scripture that we need to be out there telling other people about Christ. So while I'm presenting this, I'd like for you to take whatever notes you need to take So that you would know how to respond to people that might be asking you very similar questions. Because all through this, I'm going to give you, subliminally, but yet out there for you to understand, ways that you can communicate your faith in certain perspectives. So if you will, this message is for all who will listen to it in whatever area of your journey you are with God. If you're with me so far, say, "Uh Uh uh-huh. All right, good. Well, let's go on now, shall we? We're going to turn to Romans chapter 3. And we're going to begin with some of the objections here and then some of the responses. And I think you can follow pretty well on this. So let's go to objection number one. I put it here in my little language. I said, do Jewish people have an advantage? Because you remember it's coming off of the end of chapter two when they might say, wow, I'm a sinner too. But does the Jewish people have an advantage? And we might even expand that to do do religious people. Do they do they have any hope? Are they still going to be lost and separated from God? What about religious people? Can they have eternal life? Is there any hope for them? Look at the verse. It says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what has benefit of circumcision, which was an outward sign of an inward attitude that was fulfilling the law of an eight-day-year-old boy, an eight-day boy, that they were doing to show that they were Jewish people and that they were part of the covenant relationship with God. So they're saying, What advantage has the Jew? Or what benefit do all these rites and rituals and regulations have? Do we even have an advantage? And the response is, Yes, there is a privilege being a Jew. Notice how Paul responds. Great, in every respect, there's advantage to be Jewish, even though you're under the law and you're lost. First of all, that they are entrusted with the oracles of God. That gives an advantage to Jewish people, especially to understand God, the real God, the Messiah who is Christ from the Old Testament writings, as well as salvation that's embedded in there in the germ or the uh, seed level of salvation in the Old Testament. It is an adva- advantageous to them but it still doesn't mean that they have eternal life. So what are they doing? They're questioning their uniqueness or their privilege or their specialness. You mean all this that we've done, all this that we know about God, that has no help? Are we special in any way? Is there any advantage in all of this? Is there? Yes, there is. But listen, folks, listen. No matter how special they are or were, that still does not give them a leg up into eternal life because there's still only one door. It's Jesus. There's only one way. It is faith in jesus the messiah that gives him eternal life and so even though they're jewish they do have some advantages but even those advantages does not do not get them into heaven Now let's pause for a moment the question is now okay what what would be the advantage of being jewish if there is an advantage and i'm going to reduce it to two biggies okay in this context it says the oracles now some people might want to say well that would be the decalogue the ten commandments it could be the Pentateuch. I think the word, if you run it through more scripture, you're going to find that it really refers to all the sayings, all the teachings, all the principles, all the commands of God in the Old Testament. So they had the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to give you some new stuff that you might not be aware of, but I want you to catch this because this is so cool. Most of you have probably seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark or something, all right? And so they're looking for this arc. And I love Hollywood movies and all the fun and all that stuff of that kind of a movie. I don't like all these movies. I don't want you to think I go to movies, but that that deal. But I want you to know, like all the so-called biblical movies coming out today, there is so much written into that by unsaved men or religious men, but not blood-bought, born-again believers in Christ that do that. So those stories are skewed because they're really driven by often greed or money or popularity or whatever. Now that being said... If you recall, as the children of Israel, they left Egypt, they are now in this wilderness experience, God now begins to communicate to them in a very special way through Moses. And we would call them the covenant, or the testimonies, or the teaching. And in one time, two times actually, but he went up to the mountain, and on those particular tablets you had the Ten Commandments. Well, at the same time all that is going on, the Lord is now saying that they have to build a box, and this box would be an ark, not as big as uh, the big ark that Noah had, but a, but a big enough ark, and on that ark, it was such a special ark, they would pour all this melted gold on the outside, all this gold on the inside, they had special little um, hoops we might say on each side that they would take this long pole so they could carry it, and they had to carry it a certain way, certain times, certain people, everything was special with this ark, but that's not what was so special. On top of the ark, they also had a special seat that was up there with some handcrafted angels that were put up there because that's where the mercy seat would be. That was very special in the Old Testament as they showing the type of the shedding of the blood and the mercy of the Lord and how then in the future the Messiah would come and do all of that. But that's not what was so special. Inside the ark, it was to contain something. There was three items in that. One that I want to talk about now happened to be the testimonies or the oracles of God. So the Jews were given this, they were given this box, they were to put it in this box, they were to protect this box, carry this box, they were to put it in this tabernacle tent kind of thing because the oracles of God were so important and that was given to the Jews. But that wasn't good enough either, because after they got into the Promised Land, after many generations, David popped on the scene, and then he wanted to build this extravagant temple to put all of this stuff in. God says, no, not you, there's a lot of reasons, but you can do it to the next generation. So it went down to Solomon. So Solomon then takes Dad's plans, gets all of this stuff put together, where Dad had all these uh, connections in the community, we might say. And so he built this, the temple of all temples, But inside that temple happened to be this ark. Inside the ark happened to be the oracles of the testimony. Now, I'm saying all that to say this. So when the Jews felt like they had a connection to God, they had boatloads of information of their connection to God. And why? Because of all that teaching and who they were. That was what they felt so special. Here's number two. The other, we might say, privilege of the Jewish people was that they were to take their God And communicate it to others. No, not marry. No, not bow down to the other gods. No, not become like the other nations around them. But whatever they could about their God, make their God known. Now, if you want to, you could read all about that in Joshua how that even ahead of time, you saw Rahab the harlot was already hearing about God because it was being talked about. I said all that now to say this. We're coming back to this point. Where the Jews would feel like, look, with all my religiosity, my rules, regulations, rituals, all of that, that gives me my special connection to God. And so they're saying, yep, you are special. You do have an advantage. That is true. But that's not enough to get you to heaven. Now, folks, listen up. This is how you can use this when you talk to other people who are just as religious, but they're not Jewish people. And now you can go through your own mind. What, are, what would be some people that are religious, and I don't mean like the pagan types. Now I'm talking about those that have some connection to God. Now if you don't mind, I'll bring this name out to you because we certainly love these people. And that would be the Roman Catholics. And so if you're listening and you're Roman Catholic, I want you to know that I'm like in your backyard right now sitting on a, on a log just chatting with you and all the love that I can. And you know as well as I do that your religion, your background has a lot of rules, rituals, regulations. You got all that. So you sit on this log for a moment. Now I want to talk to you that are Episcopalians. And you have your rules and regulations. And you Methodists, you have yours. And those who are Baptists, we have rules and regulations. So what advantage do we have? Well, for one thing, those that are truly embracing their Catholicism and those that are truly embracing all the other denominations, and if you know, that's what I'm talking about now. We'll call it uh, Protestantism and Catholicism. The advantage is, we don't have to communicate to them that Jesus is God. Most of those people already believe Jesus is God. Do you agree with that? Say, uh-huh. Do they have some kind of a Bible or a book that is very similar or to our Bible right here? Do they not have that? Yes, they do. Do they not believe that there is some kind of afterlife called heaven or something very similar to that? Do they? Yes or no? Yes. Do they believe in a condemnation state afterwards, whether there's a middle ground getting there or not, or getting away from it, they still believe there is an eternal judgment that they have to face. Do they do that? Yeah, they believe that. So they have a lot in common. What they don't have, again, as the threat of all of that, even though they might believe Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, they're not believing that Jesus, when he died on the cross that he paid the complete payment for everyone's sin, and that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So even religious people, they have an advantage. So don't put them down. Use that illustration. Whether it's a Roman Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, or Episcopalian, and I find out a little bit about their background, I don't say, who. No, I don't do that. We'll use Roman Catholic, because there's so many on the island. I'll ask them, you're Roman Catholic. Well, what kind of a Catholic are you? And they'll say, uh, I don't know. what do you mean? I guess a Roman Catholic. Okay, what kind of a Roman Catholic are you? Uh, I, I, I don't know, what, what do you mean? I'll usually ask this, are you a Roman Catholic that is absolutely positive that if you were to die today, you go from here directly to heaven, and you don't stop anywhere on the way up? And most of them say, no. Wouldn't you like to know that, how to do that, how you can get there? And when you do that positively with a lot of love and a lot of grace relationally, a lot of them will at least let you lovingly unpack what you believe with them. And so now here you're off and running again. And you're not denigrating their religion. You're just making sure the issue is always grace versus works. All right, that's objection number one in response. Safeguard it and share it was their two main responsibilities. They were given God's word. All right, let's go to the second objection. All right, so now he's going back to the jury and he's thinking what they might be thinking. And he says... They might be thinking, well, if we give up on God, you know, here we are religious, but if we give up on God, will he give up on us? Let's look at the verse. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God? Will it? So they're really questioning God's faithfulness. So here's what's really going on in their mind, if you don't mind me sharing this with you. What's happening is that they're thinking, all right, um, maybe if... If I'm unfaithful God will finally say I'm through with you I'm done Well remember who he's speaking to in this context He's speaking primarily to Jewish thinkers Jewish people Jewish minded folks So he's speaking in what we call a Jewish context Believers are all there We got that But that that Jewish mindset So they're thinking Well maybe even though I have that special privilege That God might not be faithful to me If I'm not faithful to him Now, if you want to, and I don't have time, but if you want to, you want to go through the Old Testament. And here's what you're going to find in the Old Testament. There are many promises that God made to the Jewish people. When he made those promises to the Jewish people, some of those promises are in two categories. Category number one is what we call conditional promises. Category number two is going to be unconditional promises. So he's got conditional and unconditional. Conditional is, if you do this, I'll do that. And unconditional means no matter what, I'm going to do this. That's a promise. Let me give you some of the promises of God. One is, God said that there'll be a Jewish nation. It'll be so large, you won't be able to count all of these people. They're going to have their own land. And from that Jewish nation, the Messiah is going to come out through that group, particularly through the tribe of Judah. Now, if you go back through the study, especially if you want to, over the book of Judges, you're going to see how many times these Jewish people, who had an unconditional promise from God, they were not faithful, yet God remained faithful To the very end. So even if you're religious and you step back, I want you to know there is still hope for you if you place your faith alone in Jesus Christ because God will not reject his own. Now, let me explain to you on the part of salvation. Now you need to listen very carefully because this truth will impact any religion including the Jewish people. Conditional salvation and unconditional salvation. Conditional salvation is simply this. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, God will give eternal life to them. He that believes on him has right now everlasting life. That is conditional. It's conditional upon us believing in Christ. Are you tracking with me so far? If I believe in him, he gives to me eternal life. Now this is where it gets dicey. Then some people say, okay, that must mean, since it's conditional to get into salvation, it now becomes conditional to get out of salvation. No, no, because at the moment that we engage the unconditional promise, which is, if I tr- the conditional promise, once I place my faith in Christ, he now saves me, all of a sudden what's ignited is God's unconditional promise that says that if you believe in me, you will never perish. That's a wonderful passage I showed you or shared with you a moment ago that that man gave me from John chapter 10. And he says, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never, ever perish. Now, the beauty of that is, and I think all of us, if we're humble and honest to admit, as a believer in Christ, there have been times that we did not follow Christ. We did not really live for him. That we were unfaithful to the Lord. Can you kind of look at me and at least nod your head if that's true? Okay, that's true. Did the Lord ever stop his unconditional promise and say, okay, you're going to hell? No, because that's a, an unconditional promise to you and me. Well, let's go back to the passage here. So he says, if we give up on God, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? So they're questioning God's faithfulness. The response is, absolutely not. May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. So it's saying here that even if you give up on the Lord, He is still the Lord. He will still be who he claimed to be. He will still fulfill every one of his promises based on what he said in his word because he is totally, totally faithful. All right, now, it goes into the next objection. So think about Paul. And he's looking into the eyes of these jury members. He's saying, I wonder what they might be asking next. They slip back. God's still faithful. Hmm... I bet they're thinking now that it doesn't matter how they live because God still loves them, will still give them eternal life, which brings our third objection here. Why bother being good? If God keeps his promises, then why be good? Because no matter what happens, I'm still going to heaven. It says here, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? And I like this phrase, I'm speaking in human terms, which means he's saying, I'm building an argument right here that is so ludicrous because it's it's devised by man rather than God. It's your thinking, not God's thinking. So they are questioning God's righteousness. All right, let me see if I can make it clear by an illustration, because some of you are saying, I still don't get that. I don't really, what does that really mean? All right, listen up. This illustration might help you. He's asking a question and answering a question here that is a little bit more thinking. What they might be saying, what they might be thinking is this. All right, why be good then? In fact, if I'm unrighteous, the more unrighteous I am, that means the more righteous God is. So I'm really doing God a favor by being more unrighteous because the more unrighteous I am, God really shines. The worse I am, the better he is. Wow, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make him better. I'm going to make everybody really like the grace of God. I'm going to be as bad as I can be. Now, is that stupid? Say amen. I just indicted all of us because later on in the same book, he really speaks to Christians and he says, well, you folks, you got brain damage? You, you think what shall we say shall we continue in sin so that grace can abound and he says the same thing God forbid no 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 let me show you again how stupid it is if you don't mind I want to really drill this home husband and wife they get married partly through the marriage the husband now starts cheating on the wife and he starts running all out the wife still remains faithful he's not faithful he comes to her and says hey You ought to be thanking me right now because the more unfaithful I am, the more faithful you look. And I want to say this very tenderly. We're laughing and having a good time, but there are many people listening to me right now that maybe not have heard that argument, but are feeling the pain of some unfaithful partner in their life. So it goes out a little bit more, and he comes back, and she's a little bit upset now. She's been very faithful, but now she starts really talking into her husband's life. And he says, Hey, you can't do anything. You have got to be patient with me. You're supposed to be all patient. I'm the guy here, and I'll come back right now. Blah, blah, blah. And she gets more angrier. You know what that reminds me of? That kind of reminds me of a little bit of this passage. Now, this may sting when I tell you this. The Lord, in His faithfulness and His patience and His righteousness, no matter how unrighteous we are, He is still righteous. And part of His righteousness is to allow you to go as far as you want to go in your lifestyle.